Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario passed a housing bill Monday intended to spur development, but critics say it's going to lead to higher property taxes, weaken conservation authority powers, and will not actually make homes more affordable. Let's get into that. The next Bank of Canada rate not scheduled until December 7th, but uh, is the bank overshooting with its hikes and its policies? And how does Canada repair frosty relations with New Delhi? Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, will join us to talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, a story that, uh, that we talked about a couple of days ago, first of all, that's not going away because of the implications, wide-ranging implications about this, uh, and that, of course, is uh, the provincial government's incursions into the Green Belt. Now, uh, if you've been away for the last nine months, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, that's never going to happen because the premier himself said he was never going to do that. I heard him do that. Well, you did. About three different times he vowed that he was never going to do this, uh, as did his municipal affairs minister. Of course, a few weeks ago, they changed their minds and uh, they're freeing up an awful lot of green space. Well, thanks to some great investigative reporting uh, from the Toronto Star and from Nar- the Narwhal, uh, we're starting to get a much clearer picture on this. And it's not a pretty picture as to who's involved in this, uh, how they found out about this, and why the decision was made. Joining us to talk about this is Emma McIntosh. Emma is a reporter with the Narwhal, and of course, one of the authors of a very extensive report on what has gone on on this so far. Emma, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us this morning. Good morning, Bill. Great to be back. Uh, well, this one is a, a, a troubling story, and on so many facets of it too. I mean, we can talk about you know the ideas about you know the more houses and the development charges, and that's one thing that needs to be discussed. But I want to talk about the green belt itself, and, and as I mentioned in my commentary on CHML the other day, it's not just that they're doing; it's it's who's going to benefit from this and how they're doing it that I think's got a lot of people upset. Uh, you've done a lot of work on this, Emma. What have you found? Well, I guess for starters. Um, I've come on here in the past to talk about other work, about Highway 413 and the Bradford mm-hmm. Bypass. And if you listen to those, you probably will hear some familiar names um, because the set of developers we found who are going to benefit has some some serious overlap with our list from Highway 413. Um, you know, that includes uh, the DeGasperis family that runs uh, TAC developments. Uh, that includes Michael Rice, uh, a developer who runs Rice Group. So um, what we did is we looked at the land holdings in these 15 parcels or areas of protected green belt that the government is proposing to open up. And then we looked at who owns them, who's behind the companies in some cases who own those co- those uh, swaths of land, and whether those developers have any connections to the foreign government. And yeah, we found a lot. Um, we found of the 15 areas, eight include properties that were purchased in the last four years since Doug Ford was recorded in 2018, telling a private audience that he would open a big chunk of the green belt. Um, and that was really the thing that, that caught our eye the most. Well, because it raises the, the, I guess, the obvious question, why would a developer, and these guys have been in the business for a while, all the ones that you've written about here, why would they buy a piece of land that's in the green belt if the premier has already said that's never going to be developed? Why would they do that unless maybe they knew something we didn't know? Well, that's exactly the question. Um, and it's not like they're spending a couple thousand dollars here or there. Um, I think some of these land sales certainly were big investments. For example, um, one that was particularly interesting to us was a transaction from September 15th, so a matter of weeks ago, um, where 
a company run by Michael Rice paid $80 million for two pieces of land that are entirely in the green belt and entirely cannot be developed. Now, $80 million for something you can't build on and can't make money from, aside from farming. I don't know how much farmers make in uh, a year. I don't know if it's close to I 80 million. I don't think million. it's 80 million. I'm pretty sure yeah. it's not 80 million. And, and so it really raises questions about, you know, what Michael Rice knew, um, if anything, and, and why he made that purchase. Um, but he's certainly not the only one. Um, we, we found that several other developers have purchased land in the last four years um, and now stand to make a, a big profit. This is something... It happens a lot in the greater Toronto area. It's a practice called land speculation, where developers buy up pieces of land and hope that one day they can lobby or push uh, to have it rezoned and that they can develop it one day. But with Greenbelt land, it's particularly interesting because the whole idea was it was supposed to be undevelopable forever. The other element of this that now I know you've, you've tried to get some answers and they're not really forthcoming uh, from the government this time around, Emma, is... What was the decision process to, as to why they picked those parcels of land, uh, which, which, you know, it was one of the first questions that jumped out here. And I know you've attempted to get some answers on this. Uh, you know, is there a scientific reason why they did this? Is there something else that's going on here? What was the criteria for making this decision? And they're not talking about that. No, they're not doing a good job of explaining this decision to the public, to, to be frank. Um, the government has said that what it's doing is it's picking pieces that are on the edges of the green belt that are kind of close to other developments or um, close to those municipal services that you would need to actually build homes there like uh, wastewater connections or electricity um, stuff that basically would be easy to build on um, but that still doesn't really explain why these 15 areas. And and that's something that we asked the government and that they declined to provide an answer on. You know, we asked them if there's any, you know, scientific, biological basis for this. Do did they pick these parcels because they're going to be um, less of a loss to the environment, for example? We don't know. The government hasn't said. Um, and when you look at the overlap between the developers who stand to benefit and how much they've donated to the party, I think that raises another set of questions. There, there are some things that I guess have to be put in. You know, I know you've included all these in the article, but I just want to remind our listeners about this. Uh, since the Greenbelt was instituted way back around 2004, I think it was, in the McGinney government, uh, and I've mentioned to my listeners in the past that, that my wife, Rebecca, was one of the original members of the Greenbelt Council, served about five years there. And so she knows all of this and doc worked with Dr. Elgie, was the first chair, et cetera. So, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of discussions about this. Uh, the rule never was you can never, ever, ever build in there. What it, what it was is there could be some exceptions because there is, as you mentioned in the piece that, uh, that you wrote in the Narwhal, uh, there's some stuff, there's some infrastructure that's already in the Greenbelt. Uh, and, and so that's... But you've got to make a, a, a very compelling argument why you need to add on and build stuff like that. Uh, and we haven't heard too many of those. The other is there was supposed to be a reevaluation at the five-year and 10-year mark and every five years thereafter. Uh, so that if you wanted to make a case, you could do it then. Uh, the, this government doesn't seem to want to pay any attention to that. So that that's a concern. Uh, as you mentioned in the piece, too, it's they, they say this is on the fringes of your green belt so we can still service the land. It's also on the fringes of that highway they want to build, too. And I'm, uh, and you connect those dots in the article, but the government doesn't seem to want to go there, do they? No, the government says that this is strictly about building houses. 
um, that it's just about making sure that we can tackle this housing crisis. And let's be clear here, we are in a housing crisis. Um, as someone who has tried to look for a new home in the last year and will probably never own one, um, I'm, I'm right there with everybody who's worried about it. But I think that an important fact check to add in there is that the province's own housing affordability task force has said that land supply is not the problem. It's that we don't use the land we have efficiently. Um, cutting into the greenbelt to build a whole bunch of, uh, you know, monster homes or, you know, large single family homes um, isn't actually what we need to solve the housing crisis. And that's also something environmentalists have been saying for a long time. Uh, it's it's called um, you know a myth that has has been debunked over and over, and so it's really interesting to see the government bring out that argument now. Well, and that's that's one of the the contradictions here, because I know that every time you've talked to to Minister Clark about this, and others have done this, uh, that is trying to get some answers about what's going on here. They keep coming back. I mean, and you've covered politics long enough to know. I mean, they have their talking points, and that's that's all you're going to get out of them most of the time. Uh, no matter what question you ask, uh, he's going to swing it back to, well, we need houses. Well, of course we need houses. Nobody's arguing that. But like you say, when their own uh, task force, this was appointed by the Ford government, says you don't need to do this. There's lots of land uh, within the existing uh, urban boundaries and, and outside of the Greenbelt. They said right in their report, uh, you shouldn't be touching the Greenbelt. We don't need to do that. And the government is just basically ignoring that whole clause and that whole part of the report and says, yeah, we do. Uh <laughs> And it, 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 it really kind of asks the question here, uh, who benefits? I mean, that's you know the key phrase in, in every legal argument. Who benefits from this? Well, right now, it's the developers who have poured a whole lot of money into Doug Ford's re-election campaign who seem to be benefiting. And that, that you know, that smells. I mean, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, uh, you know, you got to wonder what's going on here. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are in that boat where they're wondering what's going on here. And maybe in that vein, it makes sense to talk about, you know, some of the connections between these developers and the government, because we haven't gotten into that yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, we looked at nine developers who stand to benefit the most from this this big land swap that the government's proposing. And we found that, you know, whether it was them, their companies, their families, their senior staff, that these developers all polled have donated more than half a million dollars to the party since 2014. And when you think about the fact that uh, for many years, the individual donation limit was not much more than $1,000. You know, that's a significant amount. Um, they did donate to other parties, but but about half as much. Um, and mostly back when the Ontario Liberals were in power. So that's one thing. We also looked at lobbying, and we found that several of these developers hired, uh, you know, Tory insiders, former um, PC politicians who are now working as registered lobbyists, including, you know, um, federal conservative MP Peter Van Loan, who was actually the president of Ontario's PC party. Um, and so when we look at these connections, it's not about, um, it's not that donations and lobbying buy these developers the outcome they want, and they're not doing anything wrong. This is how our political system works, mm -hmm. and they're using it quite effectively. The point is, it gets your perspective in the room. It elects somebody or it helps elect somebody who is open to your perspective. And I think we can certainly see that in the policy that we're seeing, that the developer perspectives are represented. Well, and you have to ask yourself, because you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the way the game of politics is played, especially at that level. 
uh, you do want to ask favors and curry favors. And it's, it's the responsibility of the elected officials at some time to say, well, yeah, yeah, but I can't do that. You know, I, I, I'd like to look favorably upon this, but you can't. And, and sometimes you have to say no, and it doesn't look like they're saying no to these people. And, and there's the, well, I'll throw that old phrase out the quid pro quo here, uh, get, you know, give these guys a lot of money and you get something in return for it. And, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, that's the way they may want it to work, but at some point there's got to be some analysis of this and and apply that to you know the standards that are set before we start looking where we're going to develop a, lands in the future. And they, they seem to have skipped that whole process. They certainly did it with the highway, the projects, of course, and uh, now they seem to be doing it with these, these developments. Yeah, I want to make it really clear, too, that we don't know for a fact, or we don't know if there was any quid pro quo, and you know that, that we haven't heard that from any of the developers or from the government. Um but it really does create an ecosystem, I guess, a political ecosystem where their interests happen to be the interests of the government. Um, and it's really up to the people of Ontario to decide whether that's what they want. Um, I'll note that now, uh, for a few more days, the government is still accepting public feedback on this Greenbelt land swap. And so no matter how you feel about it, if you like it or if you don't, now's the time to... Uh, to give them your feedback and let them know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when he talked about this before, there was an immense pushback and he changed his mind. I, I don't know if they've gone too far down the road on this one, Emma, because uh, like you say, there's there seems to be some commitment here. And I, I know that uh, the soon-to-be, I guess it is NDP leader, Mert Stiles, is, is talking about some sort of an investigation. I, I would be surprised if, if that were to happen, simply because this is a majority government and they're not going to investigate themselves. So... Uh, you know, public outcry probably is the only major tool that, w that can be used here at this point. Uh, you're right, and, and public outcry is definitely happening. There's a, a day of action just over the weekend. Um, but I will be watching to see. So like you referenced there, um, NDP MPP Merritt Stiles has asked Ontario's Auditor General to investigate Greenbelt land sales, and specifically also to examine whether any MPPs violated their ethics rules, um, perhaps by sharing insider information or, you know, conflict of interest rules. Um, we'll see if the Auditor General wants to investigate that. But the fact that uh, MPP ethics rules are coming up also kind of makes me wonder if the NDP might be considering asking the integrity commissioners to investigate. We don't know if those things will happen or if they do, where they can go. Um, but it would ensure that these things stay in the headlines for, for quite a while. Um, so we'll be watching. We bet. And we'll be reading too. Great work on this as always, Emma. Thank you so much for the, the, the great research you did on this. And thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Always a joy to be here. Take care. Emma McIntosh, reporter with the Narwhal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Getting economic news uh, coming at us from just about all directions these days. One thing I can tell you for sure is uh, the next uh, Bank of Canada rate is going to be on December 7th. That's about a week or so away. And it will be a hike increase. That's, I mean, the Bank of Canada governor has already told us that's going to happen. Uh, we just don't know how significant it's going to be. The former Bank of Canada governor, though, uh, has been speaking about this and uh, has made some statements that, uh, well, some people are starting to wonder if we're on the right track or just how effective it's going to be. Uh, Stephen Paulo says the full effects of interest rate hikes have yet to be felt and will be, in his words, even more powerful than many anticipate. What's he mean by that? And should we be worried? Should we be fearful? 
Uh, let's bring our next guest in to talk about this. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. And Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning. Is, are, are these ominous words for Mr. Polos here that th these may be more powerful? Does, does that mean more devastating? Does that mean more efficient? I mean, where is he? Where is he going here? Um, I think he's hedging. I, I, I think he's <laughs> right to say that it could be more powerful. But if you take a look at some of the additional comments he made, he also did kind of indicate he doesn't know. So, uh, you know, it, it's nice speculation. Um, and I, I would assume that if he is saying more powerful, he is probably indicating that uh, we might have done too much too quickly. But uh, as he also said, time will tell. Well, let's talk about that because you and I have, have had that discussion. And again, it's 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 pretty much into the hypothetical right now because we, we don't have hard and fast numbers. As as you keep reminding us, well, we're watching you know fluctuations in inflation numbers, et cetera. They're not dramatic fluctuations at this point. Uh, but you keep reminding us that the impact of these things is probably not going to be felt for another year, year and a half, maybe even two years. So uh, you know, the, the fluctuations we're seeing right now are probably not being caused by the Bank of Canada policy. Is that a fair statement? That's completely fair. And so the, the Bank of Canada started increasing interest rates in February of this year. So that's 10 months ago. Um, and, and so we still have another, you know, six months to a year before we even see uh, the beginning of those. And if you remember, those were just 25 basis point increases. That's very, very tame. And so the big increases came in the summer of this year. So we've got to wait at least until the end of 2023. And that's why uh, Stephen Pelos and that's why Tiff Macklem, the current governor, is saying we're not going to be on target until the end of 23, beginning of 24, because that's how long it takes. One of the other things, when you talked about the sensitivity of, of the economy these days, and, you know, I've talked about this in the past, you know, Economics 101, I guess, suggests that, you know, if you have high inflation, this is what you need to do. Uh, but this is a, a different animal that we're dealing with here. I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic and it's a very, very tenuous economic recovery that's being impacted by this. Uh, is there still an argument to be made that, that maybe the Bank of Canada is going too fast on this and, and too severely? It could be. It, it It's really an issue of maybe the aggressive move is to try and maintain credibility. And that's been compromised uh, by waiting so long to move on interest rates and by attacks from politicians, which we haven't really seen uh, before. So, you know, maybe the move here is in part that most of the interest rate increases are probably very justified. Uh, but also part of it is to make sure that the public understands they are committed to keeping inflation at 2%. And the reason why they waited was to make sure that the pandemic was... Uh, at least from an economic standpoint, a thing of the past. And so, uh, you know, they can always undo those interest rate increases. That's the great thing is you can always decrease them later. Uh, and so right now, part of that might also be, uh, you know, signaling their virtue that they're still committed to the goal. The other element to this, I guess, is the personal element. Uh, I mean, we can talk about this at the macro level. You know, this is the protocol and this is the the strategy that should be used. But uh, but as Mr. Polos uh, reminded uh, his audience at, at Western University the other day when he was making the speech, we, all of us, we as a society anyway, have a much higher debt load. I mean, we, you know, we probably misbehaved a lot with low interest rates and we went and bought things that we probably couldn't afford. And I know that, you know, you and others have just said, you know, the rates are going to go back up. Yeah, 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 sure they will someday. Yeah, but I, that, that's way back in, that's way in the future. Uh, but now we're stuck with that. Every time there's a rate increase right now, uh, that's that's going to be burdensome to people that are carrying a pretty heavy debt load right now. 
is that just collateral damage or should the, the bank or for that matter the government but i think more importantly the bank uh be paying attention to that they should pay attention but uh you know at the end of the day you're right it, it's partly of our doing this is also partly i guess uh something that is called the greenspan put uh, when alan greenspan was chair of the fed he created a little bit of uh what's called moral hazard where every time something went wrong in the economy, he quickly moved to lower interest rates. Uh, and, and those things going wrong were things like stock market collapses, the dot-com uh, bubble bursting and uh, things like that. And so people got trained uh, pretty quickly that when things go bad, the central bank will bail you out by lowering interest rates. And so I think what's been happening is that we've come to expect that we can take big gambles on our debt load. And if things go bad, then the central bank will bail us out. And uh, that's part of the problem now is that when the central bank is saying this time, we mean it, we're not going to bail you out. Um, there's a certain element of, yeah, yeah, whatever you say. And, and now I think what the central bank has to do is say, no, we really mean it. And we're going to have to reestablish that credibility. And that's why I, you know, they need to make sure that we don't see like wide, uh, scale financial collapse. Uh, but if it takes a bunch of people down in the process, lesson learned, uh, and that might be what's necessary. Both uh, Mr. Paulos and, and Macklin, the current uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, have used the term transitory when it comes to inflation, uh, which some people, well, I guess it's in you know in the ear of the beholder. Uh, some people take that to mean that, well, this is going to fix itself. Don't worry about it. This is just a little blip. Uh, because as we know, there are some outside factors that are influencing what's going on here too. And as soon as those things get straightened out, everything should be fine. Uh, but that, I don't think, precludes us from doing what we need to do at this end, domestically, does it? Right. And, and so there's two different factors coming into play in our inflationary situation. Some are from the demand side, some are from the supply side, right? So all of the supply chain stuff, uh, that is transitory and that will go away. And raising interest rates will not fix that. So uh, I think that the central bank has been pretty clear that, uh, you know, supply chains will correct themselves and uh, despite ongoing lockdowns in China, eventually that will cease and life will return to something resembling pre-pandemic normal. The demand side, though, can completely be fixed with interest rate hikes. And so over-indebted uh, individuals and businesses, uh, excessive spending, lack of saving, those types of things respond really well to higher interest rates. And so that part of the story is not transitory, and that part has to be eliminated quickly because once that feeds over into higher wages, uh, you create that wage price spiral that becomes really difficult to undo. So um, they, they are right. The transitory portion of it is transitory and it will go away. It's just I think maybe we have a disconnect when economists say transitory. We're talking about that 18 to 24 months business. Uh, I think, you know, Canadians in general think transitory means it'll be gone in the next 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the instant solution that we're all looking for here. Uh, the other element, too, is just at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about this. I think Paulus referred to this, about the impact it could have here. As as you said, all this process here is really to kind of slow down our spending and, and to slow down the economy. Uh, but when you do that, of course, you don't need as much production, and there's always the concern about job loss. Uh, is, is there a red flag that we should be looking for to say, whoa, maybe we're going too far here? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is I'm not sure that we're going to see the big job losses this time around. The, the thing with the recessions is that they're all the same in some ways, but they're all different uh, in some ways as well. And so, you know, recessions characterized by big job losses and rapidly rising unemployment. I, I don't know that we're going to see that this time around. 
Uh, I think businesses are, are much more likely to try and absorb the labor that they have and maybe give them mundane tasks uh, and just kind of busybody work rather than letting them go. We've seen in the last six months how difficult businesses have found it to try and hire people. The last thing you want to do is let go of the people you have and then try and find them on the other side of whatever economic slowdown, recession, or whatever it is we're going to experience in 2023. So keeping them around, keeping their wages flat, uh, giving them stuff to do just to keep them uh, on board is probably likelier. And that means then that if we don't really see the the big jumps in inflation, we can probably handle then a, a mild recession without severe consequences. And, and that would allow then the Bank of Canada to maybe moderate their position on interest rates uh, later next year. Well, we'll see what happens on the 7th. Uh, as always, Moshe, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. You got it. Anytime. Moshe Lander from uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big push, of course, is for electronic electric vehicles, and uh, you know the the major automakers are in this. I mean, they they've they're all in. I mean, they they understand this is the future, and they're looking for investments uh, and in partnerships in some cases, uh, which is why the next story is rather troubling: uh, bankruptcy of uh, Stellantis's uh, joint venture in China. Uh, could spell trouble for other global automakers whose uh, output has plunged over the last five years. And, and let's keep in mind, China is the largest car market in the world. Uh, but it looks like it's not the auto industry that's suffering. It's the uh, the foreign automakers in China that seem to be suffering. So what's going on here and what are the implications? Joining us to talk about this is David Adams. David is the president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada. David, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill. Appreciate it. David, let's, let's, let's talk a bit about the situation here in China as it stands right now. This uh, this was uh, Stellantis, uh, which is, uh, of course, a combination of a couple of other automakers that uh, that amalgamated a little while ago. Uh, they're partnering with Chinese automakers, and uh, and my, my understanding is that, that other uh, global makers are doing the same sort of thing here. Uh, but now all of a sudden there's a, a declaration of bankruptcy. What happened? Well, it's um, yeah, it's difficult to know what happened on the face of it. Uh, Stellantis is not one of the members that we represent, but that uh, that relationship with uh, Stellantis uh, and uh, Chinese uh, partner really stems from uh, my understanding back to the '60s when I think it was Jeep at the time was one of the the first companies to uh, to enter into a joint partnership arrangement to to build vehicles in China, and um, you know that's been the, the I guess, um, attitude of the Chinese government that for foreign makers that are going to come into the Chinese market to produce vehicles there, that they uh, they need to do so with, uh, with a Chinese partner. And, uh, you know, that was basically, I think, to assist the Chinese auto industry at the time in, um, in basically getting a, a better understanding of how modern automobiles are, are made and also uh, to ensure that um, there is some some local commitment from the foreign automakers as well to the uh, to the Chinese economy now as I read the numbers uh, it appears that uh, uh, what they, they seem to be saying here to the Chinese auto industry is saying we don't need you anymore as a matter of fact we don't want you because our consumers are buying Chinese product as opposed to these these combination these partnership uh, problems and and you know, when you're not making cars, you're not selling cars. And if you're not selling cars, you're losing money. Right. Right. And I think that's the uh, that that's part of the challenge for sure, is that the Chinese government um, has put a, a priority on uh, developing electric vehicle technology. And, um, you know, w- without a doubt, the Chinese are, are leading the world in terms of um, of uh 
not only producing EVs, but also cultivating, um, you know, an environment where EVs are are the norm in terms of what's actually driven by by folks in in China. Um, I think the the challenge is though is that, uh, as you say, Bill, uh, Chinese government has cultivated its own industry. I think there's there's more than it's probably around 400 uh, mainstream EV producers in China right at the moment. Um, all of those uh, entities may not survive at the end of the day, but there's a number of companies that are producing EVs. And, uh, um, you know, before uh, electric vehicles became the um, sort of the, uh, the the standard, I guess, um, it was the, the foreign automakers, uh, you know, whether it's GM or Volkswagen or whoever that, um, that entered the Chinese market. And those vehicles were at one time, uh, you know, maybe still are in some cases, the most desirable vehicles for people to own. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I believe Buick was uh, at one point in time, uh, one of the highest uh, selling vehicles uh, or vehicle marks in the Chinese market. This is really just a, I I guess an evolution though, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, switching over by 2035, I think it's, well, there's different dates depending on who you talk to here. Right. Uh, But, but, you know, we're going to be mostly EV, uh, you know, consumers by that stage or so we're told anyway. Uh, China seems to be accelerating that process. I mean, the fact that uh, uh, 30% of Chinese car makers' models are, are all totally EVs, uh, we're not there yet in, in with the North American or with the other global brands right now. So uh, I, I, are they giving the, the Chinese market what they want, or are they simply saying, this is what we're building? If we want a car, you got to get one of these. Well, I think, you know, if you look back at what's driving this shift, I think it's ultimately a couple of things. One, I think the uh, the Chinese government probably realized, um, uh, you know, over the course of the last couple of decades or so that um, you know, they, they have an energy problem in terms of um, lo- lots of coal, but not a lot of uh, oil and, and whatnot. And the other associated problem is, uh, is environmental in terms of air pollution as well. So I think the the decision of the government to focus on um, electrified uh, vehicle propulsion was one that was born out of both of those two issues. Um, one being uh, extremely reliant on uh, oil imports and two, um, trying to address the, uh, the, the pollution that is, uh, is you know, so rampant in so many of the major cities in, in China at the moment. But it is, as you say, it's a, it's a, it's an evolution. I think what we've seen in China with respect to electric vehicles is something that we've not seen, you know, anywhere else at this point in time in terms of, um, you know, relatively inexpensive electric vehicles. There are some uh, fairly basic electric vehicles on the road in China that can be purchased for the equivalent of about $5,000 uh you know, uh, us, but, um, you know, we're not, in my view, we're not going to be seeing those, that type of a vehicle anywhere in, in North America anytime soon. Well, let me ask you about that because the concern is, I guess in some circles anyway, is that with the, the growth of the EV industry in China, uh, mm-hmm. that those automakers, those Chinese automakers may be looking, you know, towards North America, for instance, or Europe and simply say, you know, let's start selling our product there. Is, is that a concern at this stage? Um, perhaps not at this stage, but I think it, it will be uh, an issue before uh, not too much more time goes by because I think right now uh, those Chinese automakers are focused on basically supplying uh, their domestic market. Um, you know, we've seen some EVs that are, are you know, built in China that are, you know, uh, uh, being sold in North America under other other brands, you know, some of the Polestar vehicles, uh, I believe Volvos as well, for instance, um, are, 
our Chinese built vehicles. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's also been rumored that Tesla may be um, supplying uh, North America from, uh, you know, it, it's Chinese factories as well in the future at some point in time. So mm -hmm. maybe Chinese vehicles here right now, but not necessarily under, uh, you know, what, what some would call, I guess, a Chinese, a pure Chinese brand. Well, I get 30 seconds left here. I guess the, 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 is the message to be taken from this though, David, that, uh, we got to step on the, well, I was going to say the gas, but on the accelerator <laughs> pedal, uh, uh, to, to get the EV industry, you know, up to speed here. Well, I think the reality is that we're in a time of significant disruption and there, there's two focuses. One is, you know, as we've seen our federal and provincial governments working on us to get uh, that investment here in, in Canada, whether it's uh, battery, uh, EV production, uh, uh, battery components. And then, you know, the other thing is just how do we continue to uh, to drive the market for EV adoption? And, uh, you know, it's still a, a relatively new market and consumers still need to be... Um, enticed to take a look at that and uh, ensure that they are comfortable with that decision. Uh, always a pleasure, David, to have you on the program to give us some uh, perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. David Adams, who's the president and CEO of Global Automakers of Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about the Indo-Pacific uh, announcements from uh, Minister Jolie and, of course, the Prime Minister. Uh, trying to reestablish stronger ties with India uh, and maybe backing off a little bit from China. Uh, well, that may be problematic based on uh, the response we got from the Indian government. Uh, we are told to this morning that Ottawa can actually help repair some of those frosty relations uh, with New Delhi and Ottawa by cracking down on funding for a Sikh independence movement that is uh, seeking to create a sovereign homeland known as Khalistan. Uh, that's uh, Indians new envoy to Canada making these comments uh, to the Globe and Mail the other day. So who are these uh, people that are getting the funding uh, in the Sikh community? Who's doing this, and should the Canadian government get involved in this? Joining us to talk about this is Phil Gursky. Phil, of course, is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program, a former CSIS analyst, and, of course, author of many books about uh, public security. Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Nice to talk to you again, Bill, and welcome back, by the way. Thank you so much. It's good to be back after a few days off. Now, I, I got to admit, I don't know an awful lot about this group. I know that there's a huge Sikh population in different parts of the country right now. Uh, I know that even Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, uh, has has spoken out about uh, what's going on in India right now, uh, which is probably one of the reasons we have a frosty relationship with uh, with Modi and with the uh, the government in New Delhi right now, because we seem to allow that sort of free speech, and uh, they don't seem to like the response, and they don't seem to like what's happening over here. Yeah, I mean, you make an important distinction between free speech, which, of course, is part of the charter here, and we're very proud in Canada to allow that. But, you know, people that, that abuse free speech to actually support groups which advocate violence for ideological or political reasons. And we here in Canada have a rather checkered past when it comes to Sikh extremism. As You know, just to remind your listeners, Bill, you and I remember way back in 1985 when an, when an Air India flight was bombed out of the skies off the coast of Ireland, and that yep. was an attack perpetrated and planned and carried out by Sikh terrorists here in Canada. And it was the largest act of, of terrorism in aviation history prior to 9-11. And that was, like I said, it was basically, it was the product of the minds of people here in Canada who were angry that the Indian government wouldn't grant independence to, what, as you call it, Khalistan, part of the Punjab. And they thought that uh, by using terrorism, they would make their point. So uh, India's got a point here. We do still have groups here in Canada which advocate... Uh, 
the possibility of violence to get independence for, for, for Sikhs. And, you know, and there are two groups that are still listed in Canada as, as listed terrorist entities, which espouse to that cause. So, um, yeah, it's freedom of speech, but you can't use freedom of speech to advocate bombing planes out of the sky. Well, and, and I'm not trying to be trite about this, but I mean, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, you know, uh, one person's freedom fighter is the, uh, the, the next person's terrorist. I mean, it really depends on the perspective here, I guess, doesn't it? It, it does. And there certainly has been a, a long-standing conversation in India about the status of Khalistan, the status of independence for Sikhs, and, and that's okay. But when you start advocating, you know, violence, and there's no question that the, the bombing of the Air India flight in 85 was an act of terrorism. More, uh, more than 320 people died, most of whom had nothing to do with India's argument with Sikhs and vice versa. So, yeah, it's... um. It's always a fine line. I mean, you and I, you know, we talked about the freedom convoy and the fine line between what they were advocating and whether or not the government saw that as a threat of national security. So it's never an easy thing to, to I guess, distinguish. But for me, it, you know, the, the line is crossed when you actually have people that say it's okay to use terrorism to, to establish your point of view and to put pressure on a government or on a state or whomever to uh, acquiesce to your demands. You've... Uh studied these sorts of things in the past and you've also studied you've taken it to the next level and talked about the implications of governments sometimes getting involved in these and and that's another reason why canada and 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 india might have some rather frosty relations remember i guess it was about two three years ago uh when the prime minister uh, accused uh, india of inciting activities uh, because of what was going on with the farmers protesting that were going on yeah. down there and essentially uh the the, the 10 second version of that is the prime minister was supportive of the farmers uh, which, uh, you know, the Indian government did not necessarily uh, take kindly to. Uh, so that and, and a number of other things that have gone on in the past. Should governments and, and, and organizations, and for that matter, populations, in the, for instance, Sikh Canadians, uh, get involved in, in activities like this? Or do we just leave it alone? As, as the uh, newly appointed uh, envoy from uh, India mentioned the other day, he says, we didn't get inv- involved in Quebec separatism when that was going on. We just stayed out of it. And you guys should do the same thing in our, about what's happening in our country. Yeah, that, that, that's a common criticism. I'll go back even further, Bill. Remember when, when South Africa was an apartheid state and we were critical yeah. of that, then the South African government said, what about First Nations? What about your treatment of those? Why are you pointing fingers at us when you have a rather you know black mark on your record historically? I, again, it, this is a really difficult question. There's, and I think that we as Canadians, uh, you know, irrespective of the types of uh, backgrounds we come from, I think we have certainly have we have a charter right, and I would argue a human rights uh, obligation to call out injustice where we see it. And you know, there certainly are things going on around the world, and, and we have every opportunity to say that's wrong and should be fixed. But you know, when you look in the mirror and you start looking at your own record, uh, people will call it on you. So it, it, it's a difficult diplomatic game to play. Um, I would also add, though, you mentioned you know uh, President Modi in in India. Uh, he's also supportive of Hindu extremism in his country, where some pretty nasty characters have been accosting Muslims and, and killing Muslims on occasion. So, you know, they have their own things in their backyard. So I guess the bottom line is every country has its its parts that they're not proud of, uh, people that advocate violence for whatever kind of change. So you got to be careful in playing this game that people aren't going to turn the tables against you. Well, and that's happened. I mean, when we started complaining about the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghurs and, and, and well, even the two Michaels, you know, they, you're right. I mean, they brought up the indigenous people's problems yep. here uh, and the residential schools, et cetera. They're, they're paying attention. I get that. But but does that mean that government should just back off altogether? Uh, you know, because as you say, 
you have to juxtapose that with uh, what we consider to be probably a duty uh, to, to, you know, call out countries that are abusing uh, uh, residents and, and, and citizens in their country for religious, sometimes racial uh, inequities and, and on it goes. And I, I guess the first thing we have to do is educate ourselves about exactly what's going on uh, with Sikh independence. And, and as you mentioned, it's been happening for quite some time. This is not a new story. Uh, and it has become violent from time to time. Uh, do they have a legitimate cause? You know, do they have a legitimate reason for, for seeking independence in Khalistan? Uh, certainly, the Indian government doesn't seem to think so. But d- does Canada have to take an official position on this? Oh wow, you're asking all the tough questions this morning, Bill. I don't know that we have to take an official mm-hmm. position on it. I think we have to have the maturity as a nation that we can feel confident in calling out nations for human rights abuses. So you mentioned the Uyghurs in China, things like that. I mean, these, these are abuses on, on a monumental scale. I mean, the Chinese are incarcerating upwards of a million Uyghurs under what they call, you know, education and training programs, which is, in fact, their concentration camps. And when they, you know, label us to say what we did against First Nations, we can acknowledge that and say, okay, this is apples and oranges here. We're not talking about incarcerating a million people. We're not talking about blowing planes out of the sky kind of thing. So I, I think we do have an obligation as, as, a, as, a, as a free country, as a democratic country, to um, you know, make ourselves aware, as you, as you rightly point out, but also educate others around the world. This is what's happening here. The problem is you got to make sure your facts are right. You got to, you know, as somebody with an intelligence background, Bill, there's all kinds of information you collect from all kinds of sources, and it's not all verifiable information. It's not all true information. Some of it's disinformation. So if you're going to advocate for peoples that are, you know, seeking independence peacefully, not violently, then you got to make sure that you have your ducks in a row, that you've corroborated your information from multiple sources to make sure it's true. Because the worst thing that can happen is you can say, well, we support, you know, X, Y, or Z in India or Pakistan or China or wherever, and it turns out your information is wrong, first of all, you look pretty you look pretty foolish. And secondly, people say, well, you were wrong on that file. Why would I trust you on any, any future file? So, yes, we can advocate, but make sure that your information is as, as, as solid as it can be and corroborate it from multiple sources, not just the ones who are advocating for this, but independent observers that say, yeah, we've looked at this and the information is correct. I, I know this is a, a very complex situation, and, and, you know, we could go back, as you say, Phil, uh, way back in history if we wanted to do stuff like this and, and start to pass judgment as to what government should be doing or whether or not government should be getting involved in, in, in some of the activity that's going on, non-governmental activity. Uh, and, and I know that uh, the envoy talked about the fact that there's uh, what he considers to be illegal fundraising that's going on here in Canada uh, for the uh, the independence movement in, in India, uh, he wants a, a stop put to that. I, uh, that sounds like a, a, a an idea worth you know pursuing, I guess, if you uh, from their standpoint. But it's like playing whack a mole, isn't it? Because this is not uh, a concerted and 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 uh, you know a, a effort that, to raise funds in situations like this, and it's certainly not government sanctioned. I mean, that's been happening sadly in in different parts of the world. I mean, there, there were in Canada and the U.S. I mean, there were illegal fundraising events for the IRA back in the day yeah. uh, when they yeah. were seeking their independence in in Ireland. Uh, governments didn't certainly endorse it, uh, but it's probably next to impossible to try to first of all get a handle on it and then to do something about it, isn't it? Yeah, you raise a good point about fundraising, and it is like playing whack-a-mole, and it's the one reason why I think we've been relatively unsuccessful, the best of my knowledge, in trying to dry up funding for illegal groups. One tool we have that might help a little bit is what's called, as I refer to, the listed terrorist entities. So Public Safety Canada, uh, based on the advice of CSIS, 
will say that, you know, group X, Y, or Z constitutes a terrorist group in Canada. Therefore, if you, you know, if you send a check to, you know, the Phil Gursky Corporation and he's listed as a terrorist entity, I certainly hope I'm not, by the way, um, you can be charged with terrorist financing. That's probably the only good use the list actually, um, I think, serves in Canada. I, I was there when the list was first created. I actually wrote the, the first Al-Qaeda listing way back in 2002. And, you know, we said, well, whatever. We know Al-Qaeda is a terrorist group. We don't have to have the government of Canada tell us this kind of thing. But when it comes to fundraising, it could be a useful tool to, to say, look at, um, we, we've decided, rightly or wrongly, that this group constitutes a terrorist group. So if you do try to support them, you've printed a defense under the criminal code. The problem is, um, not all groups are there. Uh, groups change names with incredible alacrity, because when, when they find out they're on the group, uh, on the list, they simply change their name, and therefore you can't charge somebody because it's a different group. And, and financing, well... There's financing and there's financing. You, you rightly mentioned, and I talk about this a lot in my, in my book that you referred to, The Peaceable Kingdom, which is a look at, at the history of terrorism in Canada. The IRA were active mm-hmm. here for decades, and they were raising money you know, for uh, Irish independence. Some of the groups were doing so peacefully. Other groups, like the IRA, were doing, through, doing so through violence, through bombings and killings. And so it's a real fine line that we've been talking about constantly today, Bill, between trying to, to, to sort out you know, who's who in the zoo here and which groups... That, are, should be allowed to operate because they're advocating change, but but not advocating violence. And where where is that that distinction amongst those groups? And it, it, it's a real tough decision to make. And and then maybe another reason why government should be should be a little wary about getting involved in this because they can be looks made to look silly if they in fact support the wrong groups and and don't try to stop the action of the groups that really do intend to use violence to get their way. Well, and then you've got, you've got intent, right? I mean, you know, if somebody makes a contribution and says, you know, yeah, I do believe in Punjab independence, I, I hope someday they can get that. So I'll send them a check or something. Uh, and they may have the most sincere you know, of interest in, in, uh, in situations like that. Or somebody might say, yeah, you know, we've got to fund these guys because this is going to be all at war. I mean, we saw this happen. You know, use your IRA example. It yeah. wasn't just fundraising. I mean, people were buying, you know, weaponry to send over yeah. there to to the IRA during that battle. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, stuff that was going back, you know, contraband things that were happening there too. So it's, it's a t- intent. It's how the extent of it is going. Uh, and, and your point's well taken. If a government takes a stand on this, we'll use the example here of if the Canadian government says, okay, no more fundraising for, uh, for Punjab independence, are you then essentially de facto declaring those groups as, as terrorists uh, and as rebels in in that country, and which is going to cause, I would think, a huge pushback in this country about within within that organization and within that 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 group within the Punjab group and and the Sikh group. Well, and let's face it, Bill, it's going to have domestic repercussions. So the article that I read that was forwarded uh, thanks to one of your your staff, which is an op-ed piece in the Globe Mail from the Indian High Commissioner, I think estimated there's over seven hundred thousand Canadians of Sikh origin, something like three percent of the population. Well, you, you know as well as I do that there are writings out in British Columbia that are largely Sikh dominant. And if you're, if you're running for, you know, for parliament as an MP and you're on the record saying that I'm going to ban any support for Sikh independence or Sikh movements or whatever, you can kiss your chances of, of, of securing the writing goodbye. And why do you think it is that Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, has been rather, oh, shall we say, inconsistent in his views on this particular issue over the years? I mean, he's been quoted as saying, you know, essentially, he does give support to groups that may, in fact, use violence. He knows which which side of, you know, his bread is buttered on. He knows where the votes are coming in his writing. So it does have domestic implications. And when you have a real dog's breakfast of groups that range all the way from, you know, awareness raising to, as you said, possibly sending, you know, money for, for bomb-making material or guns, it gets really, really complicated really, really soon. And 
like most things in life, it's really hard to tell the actors without a scorecard. So, yeah, these, these are great questions that aren't, that aren't going to get resolved soon. And my only advice to Canadians is do your homework. Uh, you know, you research these yeah. groups, you know, on reliable sources and figure out who's who so you're not caught funding the wrong one and find yourself being arrested for supporting a group that's a terrorist group. Absolutely. Uh, Phil, always great to get you on here to talk about these things and, and give us some perspective. Appreciate the time today. Yeah, well, always a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. You take care now. You too. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. As I say, back in his CSIS days, uh, spent a lot of time doing research on uh, these uh, very groups that are involved in this right now. And uh, Canadian government's got to respond. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line here. We'll just see what they're going to say and how the Indian government's going to respond to that response. That's the way politics is played on the global basis, I guess. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.